Isaiah 29. Ah, Ariel, Ariel, the city where David encamped. Add year to year, let the feasts run their round. Yet I will distress Ariel, and there shall be moaning and lamentation, and she shall be to me like an Ariel. And I will encamp against you all around, and will besiege you with towers, and I will rage siege works against you. And you will be brought low. From the earth you shall speak, and from the dust your speech will be bowed down. Your voice shall come from the ground like the voice of a ghost, and from the dust your speech shall whisper. But the multitude of your foreign foes shall be like small dust, and the multitude of the ruthless like passing chaff. And in an instant, suddenly, you will be visited by the Lord of hosts with thunder and with earthquakes and with great noise, with whirlwind and tempest and the flame of a devouring fire. And the multitude of all the nations that fight against Ariel, all that fight against her and her stronghold and distress her shall be like a dream, a vision of the night. As when a hungry man dreams and behold, he is eating and he awakens with his hunger and not satisfied. Or as when a thirsty man dreams, and behold, he is drinking, but awakes faint with his thirst not quenched. So shall the multitude of all the nations be that fight against Mount Zion. Astonish yourselves and be astonished. Blind yourselves and be blind. Be drunk, but not with wine. Stagger, but not with strong drink. For the Lord has poured out upon you a spirit of deep sleep, and has closed your eyes, the prophets, and has covered your head, the seers. And the vision of all this has become to you like the words of a book that is sealed. When men give it to one who can read, saying, read this, he says, I cannot, for it is sealed. And when they give the book to one who cannot read, saying, read this, he says, I cannot read. And the Lord said, because this people draw near with their mouth and honor me with their lips, while their hearts are far from me, and their fear of me is a commandment taught by men. Therefore, behold, I will again do wonderful things with this people, with wonder upon wonder, And the wisdom of their wise men will perish, and the discernment of their discerning men shall be hidden. Ah, you who hide deep from the Lord your counsel, whose deeds are in the dark, and who say, who sees us, who knows us? You turn things upside down. Shall the potter be regarded as the clay that the thing made should say of its maker? He did not make me. Or the thing formed say of him who formed it? He has no understanding. Is it not yet a very little while until Lebanon shall be turned into a fruitful field and the fruitful field shall be regarded as a forest? In that day, the deaf shall hear the words of a book and out of their gloom and darkness, the eyes of the blind shall see. The meek shall obtain fresh joy in the Lord and the poor among mankind shall exult in the Holy One of Israel. For the ruthless shall come to nothing and the scoffers cease, and all who watch to do evil shall be cut off, who by a word make a man out to be an offender, and lay a snare for him who reproves in the gate, and with an empty plea turn aside him who is in the right. Therefore thus says the Lord who redeemed Abraham concerning the house of Jacob, Jacob shall be no more ashamed, no more shall his face grow pale. For when he sees his children, the work of my hands in his midst, they will sanctify my name. They will sanctify the Holy One of Jacob and stand in awe of the God of Israel. And those who go astray in spirit will come to understanding. And those who murmur will accept instruction. Every word of God is perfect. Let his people bless his holy name. Amen. It's been a few weeks 
But there was a line back in chapter 28 that caught some of your attention. It's when Isaiah told the people, For the Lord will rise up to do his deed. Strange is his deed. And to work his work, alien is his work. Chapter 29 is about that verse. It's an example of that verse. God is sovereignly overseeing whatsoever comes to pass in the life of his people. And that sometimes that whatsoever makes no sense to us. There's something very counterpredictable happening here. That's probably why just to hear this passage read, it's rather confusing. Is God for them or against them? Is he helping them or harming them? We would think that the longer we've lived, the more of God's works we've experienced, the more we would be able to predict or explain his doings. But here Isaiah The holy prophet of God says just the opposite. We live as though we should be able to explain all that God does. We live as though when we can't explain what he's doing, he's the one who should be on trial. We expect to be able to reason from our circumstances back to God so that we have perfect understanding of why he does what he does. And here Isaiah challenges all of that. The right response to God's whatsoever comes to pass is not first understanding. It's trust. Ray Ortland's commentary on Isaiah has been my favorite to study so far in preparing this series. And this chapter he wrote on chapter 29 may well be his best work. And on this point of understanding versus trust, he says this. In the Bible, God is saying, if I surprise you with trouble, I will also surprise you with the joy I bring out of that trouble. Yes, you may struggle to believe that now. But what seems impossible to you is the very thing I specialize in. And then he says to us, a challenge. If God never shocked you, you wouldn't really know him because you wouldn't be able to tell the difference between your notions of God and the reality of God. We learn about God from his revelation through the things that shock us, the things that break us out of our self-convinced state that we know God as he is. And our expectations, anxieties, frustrations, our emotional responses to whatsoever comes to pass, these suggest to us which God we really know and whether or not we trust him. They expose whether we know him actually as he's revealed himself or whether our notion of who God is and what he must do is instead formed by our own opinions. Israel and Judah, as historical object lessons, could both learn in their time and teach us in our time about God through what he reveals. 
Very often through the prophets, God told Israel what he would do and why he would do it. God gave them what he often doesn't give us, his reason and his purpose in a specific situation. That's been much of Isaiah so far. Here in verses 3 through 9, Isaiah references a very specific time in Israel's history, the siege of Jerusalem by Sennacherib. The northern kingdom had already fallen, and at that moment it appeared that Judah would also. And Sennacherib's army advances on Jerusalem, and no one expects them to be able to withstand the power of Assyria. King Hezekiah is trapped. He sees no way out. He's tempted to turn to Egypt for Judah's salvation. Isaiah sets the stage with all these details in these verses. But then he does a peculiar thing. He zooms out from the specific to the general. He'll come back to those events in later chapters. But here he pauses as if to say, I want you to learn something from these kinds of events. Pay attention. One of the many quotes attributed to Winston Churchill is that all of history has a current application. And buried within everything that comes to pass are lessons that can be understood and applied in the future. Whether or not that's true in general, I don't know. But I know it's true in cases like these, where God has not only acted, but he has also revealed to his people the purpose of that action. But Isaiah's concern is that despite God's revelation, the people aren't getting the message. Isn't that just like God's people? To claim they want a better understanding of his will. To claim they want him to reveal himself. And yet when he does and has in his self-revelation fully made himself known, and when he speaks of trust rather than understanding, you seem to be listening. God raised up the Assyrian army to come as a destructive force against his own people, a strange and alien deed to be sure. But if you've been paying attention over the past 28 chapters of Isaiah, you understand why. His people needed, verse 4, to be brought low, to be bowed down in the dust. They needed to be put in a position of helplessness and utter dependence on God. What seemed senseless, a betrayal, even unfair to them, is anything but. When he brings us down into the dust, one pastor writes, so low that we can barely cry for help. That's when the Holy Spirit intercedes for us with groanings too deep for words. That's when God becomes more meaningful to us than he ever was before. When God is doing things that we cannot understand, what we can always understand is what he has revealed. That he is God and that we are not. He is sovereign. He will not be controlled by his creatures or their notions of what he ought to be. 
And armed with that understanding, we always have the same choice. Will I trust him? Isaiah zooms out from the specific to the general, showing the patterns of God's working with his people from his day all the way to the day of Christ's second coming. And it's strange. It's alien. This passage reveals the kind of things God will do. Because this passage is not about the kinds of things God will do. It's about showing God's people who he is. I think it's safe to say that the only times God explains why he does anything are when those explanations give his people an opportunity to better know him. His interest is not that we would better understand our circumstances. It's that we would better know and trust him. Being satisfied about why something happened, a satisfactory explanation for whatsoever comes to pass cannot help you when the next trial comes. But being satisfied with who God is, that surely can. The term Ariel is used in verses 1 and 2. It's a, a shorthand, a name or title applied to God's people, Jerusalem. And there are a lot of meanings bound up in that name. I can't be sure, but I don't think it's a coincidence that the name God uses for his people here has so many layers of meanings. I think it's related to how we think of whatsoever comes to pass in one dimension, while God is working out many purposes. Ariel literally means lion of God which sounds like a great name for Jerusalem. Except that in this circumstance, the lion was also the symbol of Assyria, who God was sending against his people like a devouring lion. The term Ariel also refers to an altar hearth. That's why it was initially applied to Israel in the first place. The ever-burning fire of God's presence was with them and kept them warm. But altar hearths were also the place where burnt offerings were sacrificed. And that's what the city of Jerusalem was about to become, a place where many would be slaughtered. We want to know the one reason that God brought something into our lives. And far more likely is that he has more reasons than we could ever understand. And because his ways are strange and alien to us, when we develop those reasons from our own imaginations rather than from his revelation of who he is, we'll be wrong and we'll never be satisfied. Even here, though it seems to be obviously so, the Assyrian army is not at Jerusalem's doorstep to bring the judgment of destruction. All the language leading up to this makes it sound as though the Assyrian army is raised up by God for the destruction of Jerusalem. But if you know your Bible history, you know that's not what happened. God brought them to the doorstep. But in 701, when destruction appeared 
imminent. That's verses 3 and 4. Destruction is here. Verses 5 and 6. God miraculously delivered them. His purpose for Assyria here wasn't to destroy them. It was to warn them. It was to bring them within an inch of their lives so that they would turn back to him. God acted for and against his people in mighty ways. Strange and alien ways. This passage is one of whiplash back and forth. Things happen for which we have no explanation except that God purposed it to be. Why is Judah surrounded by the Assyrian army and in great danger? Because of the purposes of God. Why does that army effectively vanish and the threat with it? Because of the purposes of God. And in these cases, when God, through the prophet, explains those purposes to his people, when he tells them what all of us claim to want to know, why, O oh Lord, they do not listen. They are not satisfied. You think that if God gave you that answer, you would be satisfied. It doesn't work that way. You can only be satisfied in the knowledge that these are the purposes of a good and wise God for his people. Joshua Chamberlain was a Union officer in the American Civil War. He experienced three near misses on his life during the war. In one battle, a bullet comes right for him, and it strikes his scabbard, the tiny, thin thing his sword is in, and it hits his scabbard. And instead of costing him life or limb, it merely bruised his thigh. And on another occasion, he comes around a corner to find a Confederate officer with a pistol pointed at his head, and he pulls the trigger, and it clicks, the last round having been spent moments before. After the war, Chamberlain got a letter informing him of the other near miss. A Confederate sniper had tracked him down and written him a letter simply to say that there was one night in the war where I had you squarely in my sights. It was a clean kill, and I killed men before you and after you, but that night something would not let me pull the trigger. A scene through the eyes of faith. Strange and alien events in our lives should point us back to the sovereign God who is using them to call us back to him. Israel, like Chamberlain, had a lot of near misses that they should have understood to be providential. But Israel, like Chamberlain, missed the point. And that's Isaiah's frustration in verse 9. He just, he just kind of blurts out at them, Astonish yourselves! Be astonished. Blind yourselves and be blind. Go on then. Be dumb. Miss it all, he says. I bet some of you know the frustration that comes from dealing with the willfully blind. The man in verse 11 who cannot open the scroll or the man in verse 12 who cannot read it. The result is the same. It's so clear what God has said and yet they will not 
hear it. And Isaiah, when this happens, first emphasizes their own culpability for this condition. Chamberlain is to blame for making nothing of the near misses. Judah is to blame when miraculously delivered, needed almost no time to return back to her old ways. Maybe they escaped by luck, they'd think, or maybe by their own doing. But in no case did they see this as the purposeful act of a sovereign God. Do you not perceive or understand, Jesus asked? Are your hearts hardened? Having eyes, do you not see? And having ears, do you not hear? People in Judah People throughout history, people all around us today fail to see what God has revealed. They blind themselves to his works and his word. And so Isaiah warns, be careful. That condition can become permanent. One theologian wrote, willful blindness to the things of God decreases the chance of ever thinking clearly. Or finding the right way. That's verse 10. For the Lord has poured out upon you a spirit of deep sleep and closed your eyes, the prophets, and covered your heads, the seers. You see, God may judge those who choose to disregard him by preventing them from ever seeing him clearly. Pharaoh is the best known example in scripture. He hardened his heart before God ever did. But once God hardened his heart, there was no turning back. That's an example of God's strange and alien works that we may not understand, but in which we must acknowledge he is working. And Pharaoh's example may not concern us much, since that's a pretty extreme case. But what was happening in Judah that caused God to forever blind some to his own revelation. Verse 1 tells us, Ariel, Ariel, the city where David encamped, add year to year, let their feasts run their round. And verse 13, this people draw near with their mouth and honor me with their lips, while their hearts are far from me, and their fear of me is a commandment taught by men. What were they doing? What was happening? Here's a good summary. The blindness Isaiah is so worried about is the trite, rote worship of people in covenant with God. Beneath the beautiful observance of their festivals and feasts and worship, they were using that worship as a mechanism for avoiding God, for controlling God, and for setting limits on God thought about how good to the outside observer the avoidance of God can look? One of my favorite authors, Flannery O'Connor, has a character in Wise Blood named Hazel Motes, and she writes this of Hayes. There was already a deep conviction in him that the way to avoid Jesus was to avoid sin. People can be very moral, very religious even in what is really an effort to avoid God. 
Isn't that what the Pharisees did? Most biblical scholars agree they were saying all the right things, doing all the right things, but God was just an idea, a concept in their minds, a catechetical answer, not a spirit-imparted awareness that transformed their hearts. What about us? What about you, catechized children? What about us grown-ups? Aren't we here to worship God? And if our worship is disengaged, if it's lifeless and loveless, aren't we treating God worse than we treat many creatures? That worship, it's not about God. It's about us. Making worship man-centered inevitably makes worship me-centered. And that makes it powerless to provoke love for God or neighbor. And if you were God, and you had revealed yourself in the ways that he had, and made the covenantal promises that he made to us in our baptisms, and you looked down and saw Judah worshiping this way, Wouldn't you be offended rather deeply? God saw the false worship. He saw the graceless hypocrisy of his people in Judah. He saw them going through the motions of worship without any regard for who he really is. He saw them living without love for one another, their laws governing life instead of his word. And in response to this, he works a miracle. That's the word in verse 14, wonderful thing. That's the word miracle. The word wonder that's repeated in that verse is the word miracle. But it's a strange and alien miracle, isn't it? He blinds them to wisdom. He blinds them to discernment. His miracle is that he hardens their hearts, transforming, as one author cleverly said, head-only religion to empty-headed religion, one with no real answers for our real problems. Have you ever considered worship risky? It can be dangerous to encounter the living God. We begin our worship service with an invocation. We are literally asking God to come dwell in this place. It's a dangerous thing. For those who trust him, God is a a hearth of warmth and protection. But that same fire is burning wrath for those who claim to honor God with their lips while their hearts are far from him. Coming into such close contact with God, we enter in here to covenantal contact with God. And that's risky because it will reveal us If not to others, at least to ourselves, worship will reveal us as either one who clings to God in faith or one who is quite at ease in life apart from him. 
For us sinners, it's been said, God is both high voltage danger and overflowing salvation. And in this chapter, Isaiah offers not just the warning, but also the solution. All throughout this chapter are proclamations of God's mysteries, his strange and alien ways. And all throughout this chapter are proclamations of his sovereignty, his power to make whatsoever comes to pass. But this chapter is also filled with ample proclamations of his victory. Starting in verse 17, is it not yet a very little while until Lebanon shall be turned into a fruitful field and the fruitful field regarded as a forest? In that day, the deaf shall hear the words of a book and out of their gloom and darkness, the eyes of the blind shall see. The meek shall obtain fresh joy in the Lord and the poor among mankind shall exult in the Holy One of Israel. Wouldn't you like some fresh joy this morning? Wouldn't you like for the gloom of darkness to be taken away and replaced with exaltation in the Holy One of Israel? Then in your worship this morning, in your hearts, take God out of the neat little box you fashioned for. Acknowledge his ways as strange to our understanding. And critically, trust that his victory is as secure as his sovereignty and his mystery. Or you can deny God his proper place. You can ignore his revelation. You can trivialize his worship. But please know this if you do. He's still the Lord. Whatever he desires to do, he will do it. And when he does it, if we trust him, he will save us. Even if he must turn the world upside down to do it. See, the, the, the wicked, sinful men of Isaiah's time had turned the world upside down. That's what sin did. That's what the curse did. And what God is doing is turning it back right side up. You think that's not going to be a painful process? You think the way the universe is turned away from itself and toward God isn't going to seem strange and even painful to us? We cannot always understand God. But because of what he said, we can always trust God. And that's his invitation this morning. And it comes in the midst of a chaotic, strange, and alien life. A life that is quite painful at times. And in all of it, God is saying, deal with me as I am. I will triumph. Therefore, yield to me. I will surprise you. Therefore, be open to me. I will remake the whole universe. Therefore, lift up your hearts. It's not just why we do. 
It's how we can. We don't come into worship to pretend that the world out there is not upside down and that God's redemption of it is not painful to our experience. It is deeply painful. And when we say, lift up your hearts, we're not playing pretend. We're trusting that God will do what he said he'll do. And so is that also encouraged? Yield to the victory of God. Let him win. Stop trying to fight him. For it's in your defeat that God will lift from your heart the old lust for control and that God will set you free. The same miracle that he worked in Judah's worship can be worked in reverse. He can give us eyes to see. Verse 23, for when he sees his children, the work of my hands in his midst, they will sanctify my name. They will sanctify the Holy One of Jacob and will stand in awe of the God of Israel. And those who go astray in spirit will come to understanding and those who murmur will accept instruction. That's what we want in worship. And it's the miracle he will do. By his power, our selfish fickleness can become godly discernment. Our grumbling indifference can become willing worship. Yes, God can, even in our worship this morning, work that miracle. He can bring revival to our hearts and to his church. And that is what we need. I told you that I think this is Ray Ortland's best chapter, and so I want to read a paragraph that should speak powerfully to all of us. Kids, this is for you too, because we all need God to bring revival within us. Older people need the power of godliness in their hearts because they have little time left to get ready for heaven. Middle-aged people need the power of godliness in their hearts because they are strongly tempted to coast, to rest on their laurels, to become dull and mediocre. Young families need the power of godliness in their hearts because they are forging convictions that will shape their home for a lifetime. Singles need the power of godliness in their hearts because they can gain or they can forfeit. Single-minded devotion to Jesus. Students and teenagers need the power of godliness in their hearts because they are being targeted by the world with brilliant and attractive seductions. Children need the power of godliness in their hearts while they're young and open to be set apart to God forever. We need revivals. Brothers and sisters, we need revival, and this can happen in us by a work of God. Will you pray for it? Will you ask God for eyes to see and ears to hear? Will you ask God to drive away the fickleness and the grumbling and the faithfulness that sterilizes our worship and undermines our mission? Revival in our hearts is the only way that we will ever be satisfied with less than all the answers to God's strange and alien ways. Because it's through revival that we will be satisfied with what he gives, not those answers. 
but himself. Awareness of his sovereign presence, trust in his good purposes, hope in his certain victory. He gives us himself. God's ways are strange and alien. And the answer to our questions is not what we expect. It's revival. Sanctify the God of Israel. Stand in awe of the God of our salvation. Pray that God would revive us again. Amen.